0: Hey, welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, one hundred three seventy Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Appreciate you listening in, however you're doing. So be it through, you know, all the great podcast gimmicks that we got, the free 103.7 Game mobile app, and so many different ways. It's episode 53. You know what that means. It is time for some WrestleMania 37 talk. We're finally going to do a deep dive into both nights of WrestleMania 37, a phenomenal show, to say the very least, on night one. Night 2, and not so much. Also, I'm going to talk about some overall thoughts of what I liked from the Chris Jericho Broken Skull Session podcast that was released on Sunday morning. I was surprised it was Sunday morning. I thought it might have been a selling point to keep it tuned in after WrestleMania 37. But then again, I forgot how Peacock works, and I got a first hand experience about some of the issues I noticed with Peacock. I'll break those down a little bit. But let's go ahead and get things started off right with the WrestleMania 37 Night 1 recap. Open up with the entire WWE roster on the entrance ramp and Vince McMahon introducing the show of shows. And one thing that kind of popped out to me was, without a doubt, Vince McMahon can never say it right. He can never say WWE right. It's always WWE or something like that. He'll always butcher it. He's been called. It's been the, that company for almost 20 years at this point and he still can't say the word right. I mean, it's 19 years, almost 19 years, 18 years is like a month away from being 19 in terms of how long it's been since the WWF went away and it was WWE. But it's still amazing that he still screws it up. Then you had B.B. Rex up perform America the Beautiful, and I'd say Jim Ross probably lost his mind at this and the tag team turmoil match, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. But a really cool, you know, good performance from her. Opening package was fantastic. It had a similar kind of joking tone to last year. It was almost kind of beat for beat, kind of the same thing. And even at the Pirates of the Caribbean voiceover guy, honestly, I'd say bring that back every single year, but it's what it is to me. Set's awesome. It's a whole pirate ship, and I just absolutely love the way it all looked. I was like, okay, this is going to be a great show. I'm already kind of sold on everything. I'm hyped up, ready to go. Then we get a weather delay right from the start. I'm like, oh, boy, it is College baseball in mid May, all over again. And we got to deal with this stuff. We got to deal with the fact we don't have WrestleMania right away. But I'll give them credit. You know, they definitely were able to fill the time improvising and had them kind of having unscripted promos for everyone involved in night one, also night two as well. But really, again, just some really good stuff from start to finish here in this opening kind of stretch where you had to literally stretch for time because it's like, hey, we can't just necessarily re-air something from the kickoff because we literally just had the kickoff and two there were no kickoff matches to recap. I mean, you're not going to go ahead and re-air the SmackDown Battle Royal on WrestleMania on Peacock, right? That would be really weird. But the way they did it was perfectly fine. It felt like the old days when you used to watch those promos that they put together, like those felt unscripted, unfiltered. And it was really cool. I mean, Kevin Owens had a really good promo that, mind you, was ruined due to technical difficulties, but great to just see a lot of different things. In fact, one of the great instances of it was Lashley and Drew yelling at each other. So if you hadn't announced already this was the opening match of the night during the kickoff show, you could have spun that into their argument saying they want to go right now. They could have actually had it explained why this is the first match in the car. Really good stuff. And then we go back to Michael Cole. He needs to shut up. WrestleMania is not a thing. I, I don't want to ever hear that phrase again. But then we get to... The opening of the show. They finally are able to get things going at WrestleMania 37 night one and Titus O'Neil and Hulk Hogan come out. And at first it looks like Hulk Hogan's wearing a do-rag, then I realize it's the old bandana gimmick. And I'm disappointed because the fact that, you know, Titus does not slide to the ring to open the show. He just hangs out on the stage. And honestly, a day like that day would have been the time to do that and maybe just Redeem what happened last year, because you know, or a couple of years ago, at the Greatest Royal Rumble, because you know that meme is still out there. But Hulk Hogan got booed to hell, especially whenever they showed him on TV on the screen. People in Florida were booing the ever-loving, you know what, out of him, and I love it. Then we get to the opening contest: Drew McIntyre facing up against Bobby Lashley for the WWE Championship. And the second McIntyre came out, the crowd went ballistic. The pop for that was huge. And it speaks to the fact that, you know, that's the way pro wrestling needs to be with fans in the stands. And it really spoke to that. And he's definitely been one of the top baby faces in the company. It's great to see him get his baby face moving in front of a crowd. And then Lashley comes out and during the commentary. I believe this is Michael Cole brought up the fact that Lashley has been dominant as champion. Either that or it was Corey Graves or Samoa Joe. I don't remember who always on the call, but. Essentially, somebody said he was a dominant world champion. And I was like, really? How is he a dominant champion whenever he's only held the title for like a month? And he, prior to that, a year ago, he was involved in an angle with Lana and Rusev where he was basically having infidelities with Rusev's wife, which is is weird in and of itself. But more more power to him because he looked dominant in this matchup. I love the fact this is a nice little touch. The fact that they started off the ring introductions, McIntyre just wanted to immediately get after him. But they counteracted that with the dumbest thing of all time, opening up a match with a collar and elbow tie-up. Especially one that has some juice to it. This would have been an amazing start to the show. With these two just wailing each other. But it's a collar and elbow tie-up with two big men. Don't want to see that at all. And it's a really great big man fight between these two. McIntyre got a really awesome suplex early on that looked really smooth. The segue into it was really good also. And the whole time I'm noticing, especially when they go outside the ring, that area is soaked. Like I'm talking drenched in rain. And I'm like, hopefully nobody really does anything on the outside. Mind you, for the most part, like in the early half of the card, there wasn't much else going on. So Drew McIntyre went for the Future Shock DDT. Lashley gets out of it. Drew counters the hurt lock and gets the Northern Lights for two. Looked a little bit sloppy, but you know it's a, it's made the most of. It, made this point known, and also the fact that you have Drew McIntyre and Lashley, two just big men. It's a little awkward, but I like the way they did that. The next thing you know, you go to Lashley. He wound up having this huge slam on McIntyre, and this looked like he was basically picking up like Spike Dudley. The amount of height he got on that. That slam was amazing. I was like, "Holy hell!" Lashley has peaked. Also, gotta give credit to Drew McIntyre for somehow, some way, being able to pull this off—a reverse Alabama slam. It's so great, and even it's even more impressive when it's done on someone like Bobby Lashley. And they just went all out, and you knew they had some really—they were working on some really cool spots here and there, including Drew. He was on the top rope, or Lashley was on the top rope, excuse me, and then Drew throws him off. While he's in the tree of woe position. And it sets him for the Claymore. Lashley throws him down again. Drew Kips up. And they just start trading haymakers. It is an absolute war. McIntyre wound up going for the future shock. Gd three three straight times. Nailed it. But that only got a two and a half. Drew goes for the Claymore again. But he slips out of the ring just in time. And then McIntyre did not see this coming. A flip dive over the top rope onto both Lashley and MVP. And... Apparently, somebody brought this up. I didn't need to see it, but, you know, it is what it is. I'm going to bring this up. When he did the flip, before he wound up making the rotation, his his private parts wound up, like, touching the top rope. And when I heard about that from Matthew of Bachmania fame, I was like, what? Why are people giving us this mental image of seeing that? And you can't unsee it once you see the actual clip and the added noise that he used to it, which is funny. But, man, it made it. Threw me way the hell off when I saw that. But at one point, McIntyre winds up taking control of the matchup and locking in the Kimura lock, one of the most deadliest submission holes in WWE. I mean, it ended Triple H's career for a little while. And somehow, someway, Lashley's able to get out of it, breaks the hold. And MVP winds up getting the distraction on McIntyre. McIntyre's about to hit the Claymore kick. He's doing the whole three, two, one. And then MVP is like, Bobby, he's, he's just yelling just to get the attention of Drew McIntyre. And then he just takes a back bump, a bad back bump, I feel like, because he actually got some air on the Claymore and just took a big back bump there. Lashley locks in the hurt lock. But it looks like for a split second that Drew's going to wind up countering this. He tries to pull off the Bret Hart, Kurt Hennig spot where it's you get the sleeper hold locked in and flip over. No, that was not the case, and you, we did not see that. Lashley wound up holding on to it. And McIntyre passed out, and Drew, excuse me, Bobby Lashley retains the title. For me, that was a four links of boot anti match. Great opener. Almighty reign does continue. And hopefully, we get to see more out of Bobby Lashley because I think that's one of the big takeaways we always have about WrestleMania. What's next for him? I think he's probably the most, one of the most interesting cases because he wasn't supposed to win, I think, in my mind. Everybody else, especially the Marks, kind of felt like Drew McIntyre was going to win. I thought he was going to win. And I really wanted our guy, Drew McIntyre, to, excuse me, Bobby Lashley to retain, but it just felt like it was unlikely because, of course, you want to try and put over Drew McIntyre and put him in an opening match. It was amazing. This definitely lived up to the hype. Great stuff to start the show. Then we go to backstage, and Bailey shows up using the, wearing the weirdest damn glasses I've ever seen. And she goes to Too Sweet the NWA, but no one wants anything to do with her. Except Xbox because Xbox wanted doing that. I guess Scott Hall also obliged, even though I feel like he didn't quite know what was going on. But again, that's pretty much par for the course for him. Now we get to the more, I'd say, the weakest part of WrestleMania weekend, no doubt in my mind. Tag team turmoil. It's Naomi and Lana, or as I put them, Team Total Divas, taking on Team Billy Kay and Carmella. Who I really have no idea what they'd be called. It's kind of just the last minute throw it in there. Why not? And the Riot Squad, Natalia and Tamina, or middle aged and bitter, Dana Brooke and Mandy Rose, are the other team winner, takes on Nia Jax, Shannon Baszler on night two. So we start out with Naomi and Lana taking on Carmella and Billy Kay. And who boy, everybody online was losing their minds over Carmella because Carmella was certainly a look. As I can say also, Lana, with the glow-in-the-dark outfit, with the glow-in-the-dark entrance with Naomi, you wind up seeing some stuff that you maybe didn't expect to see on Peacock. One of the many moments that we saw during the broadcast, but boy, oh boy, definitely some fun stuff. And it starts a very quick kind of match between these two tag teams. Lana has the absolute worst attempt at a kick I've ever seen, and then Carmella and Billy Kate eliminate Naomi and Lana after I think it was Carmella pinned Naomi. Then Riot Squad's out next. And, you know, at this point, you know, Billy Kay and Carmella looked really good. They looked like they were combining together really nicely. But then they wound up having Ruby Riot pinning Billy Kay, one of the most over people in the women's division, pinning her after the combination double knees to Liv Morgan. Basically, Liv Morgan hit her with a backstabber. It was almost like a bow and arrow type hold. And then it lands with a double knees to the stomach. And that gets the one, two, three. Then, you know, Carmel is just absolutely frustrated with the fact that they're eliminated. She super kicks the crap out of Liv. And it's just a like KO. Then Dana Brooke and Mandy Rose come out. It's almost like seam- seamlessly. And then we cut to the entrance ramp. And this is the moment I think everybody talked about. Mandy Rose just completely falls on her backside. Just falls flat in her ass. Ass over tea kettle. Really weird stuff, to say the least. But then we get to the match itself, and they weren't half bad. They absolutely looked great. She demolished Liv with the bicycle knee, and she almost fell again. It looked like they were going for a superplex, but she couldn't quite set it up and didn't get it done. Liv Morgan eventually rolled up Dana Brooke and Natalia on your final entrance. But going back to Dana Brooke and Mandy Rose, the incident over there, this is one of those where it's like, yes, you're going to laugh at it, but at the same time, you can't blame her because of the fact you had all that rain happen. Now, yes, Tony Khan said, Oh, I put a carpet over when it rained. I'm like, Yes, and, you know, that, that's, that's two different things, Tony. And the fact that this is a wide open stadium rather than an amphitheater. Get your head out of your ass and quit talking about stuff during a WWE show. Grown folk are talking. Just leave it be. But we get to the match itself. It is I mean, the final moments of this tag team turmoil, which felt like it lasted an interminable about a time. Natalia goes for the sharpshooter almost immediately. Eventually, Tamina wins the match for her team after a brutal superfly splash. I believe this was on Ruby. So damn good of a finish, but I was disappointed. It was probably the worst match of the, of the night, bar none. Glad we didn't get the Bells as a surprise interest. This probably would have dropped it way down in the Budan ratings where it's at 2.5 links of Budan. It was fine, a couple of weird spots, botch kick, bylawn it. Dropped it down a good bit in my reigns because I probably would be like being generous and give it a three-star just because I like what I saw from a lot of the people involved in the match, but there were too many moments where it felt like, you know, Matthew is just having a field day for the next episode of Botch Mania watching this. Then it's Seth Rollins versus Cesaro and crowd went nuts with a brand new Seth Rollins entrance and theme everything. It's like, it was almost like a mega mix of Burn It Down and the Monday Night Messiah theme, but also like a lot more metal. It sounds like slightly different and honestly, I like it. I like the new theme and all the new gimmick because now it's definitely more of a political angle. Now you're no longer the Messiah. Now he's Running for president, I guess. The president of WCW? I don't know. But that's just the way it's written in the angle. But I absolutely love what I saw from those two in this match. his entrance. The video package for this was really cool as well. And there was some botched pyro here because he was supposed to have like a, a wall of fire all around him. But obviously with the rain, I think some of that might have knocked out the ability to do that spot. Again, I'm not hating it at all. It is what it is to a certain extent with that. Didn't hate it at all. Then we get to the actual match. Cesaro immediately goes for the swing. He tries to get another one, but Cesaro rolls him up for two. Excuse me, Rollins rolls up Cesaro for two. There we go. He finally gets the swing, pulls off about nine before his arm starts hurting. At this point, Cesaro is over huge, and you're starting to realize that. Rollins starts building momentum after moving out of the way of a European uppercut. He, at one point, hits a corkscrew splash. It's like a 360 splash. I was talking about the spinning twisty. During the final Nitro Retro Review, which you can check out on demand right now through our, through whatever podcast gimmick that you have, especially the podcast gimmick that you're using right now. And he hits this and it looks sick as hell. I was like, I've never seen anybody do that. It's a little weird. And why would you actually add some suspense to that? But it is what it is. So cool. And then we get to see, you know, really awesome stuff. Cesaro hits the neutralizer. He countered a ripcord knee. I was like, right away, he set it up. I'm like, oh, no, we're going to see this spot again. But he blocks the ripcord knee, hits the neutralizer. And that gets a two-count. Cesaro goes for it again, but Rollins counters it, goes for the pedigree. This is like a 2.9 type of move. And then comes the moment where Rollins just openly was trolling low-key and just said, screw it, I'm doing it again. I'm stealing your finisher, hitting black magic. And Loki's like... You stole my finisher. Why are you doing this? I'm like, this is awesome. I can't wait to see it done again and again. Every pay per view, we need to see this done just to piss off low key. Then Cesaro hits the UFO, and I love the fact that he hit this because it's like, I never really seen him do it all that much in WWE. He's done a lot in the Indies. I mean, in fact, that was kind of the reason why that move became such a big deal. Then he goes for the swing again, and they call it a record 23 times. I think it's a record just in WWE. Is, as you know, he has actually hit it a hundred times back in the day in Chikara. One of the more iconic videos that he's been able to do. And that spot was amazing. That was actually the finish for that one. But this was actually the swing that Cesaro wins with the neutralizer. Fantastic. Love seeing Cesaro being able to put on a classic at the biggest stage. These two are tireless workers. This is absolutely well deserved by both parties. Give me three to three quarter links at Boudin for this contest. So damn good. Probably my second favorite match of night one. I'd say night two had one that was a little bit better than that. And then obviously you had the main event that definitely blew it out the water. The other yeah, the two main events actually kind of did the same thing. Then we get to the Raw Tag Team Championship match. AJ Styles had almost taken on the new day. First of all, love the Tampa Bay Buccaneers inspired gearly somewhat. Apparently it was supposed to be used for 2020, but they... Kind of did their own work to it and just crossed out the zero and replaced it with one. So it was a 2021 gear, but also definitely more Tampa Bay Buccaneers inspired, which I love the fact they did that, especially considering that you had the Super Bowl champs come from Tampa Bay. It was a really nice touch. But also, Big E introducing him was awesome. And it looked like we were going to get Kofi and almost to start the match, but Kofi talked trash before the bell rang. Meanwhile, almost, apparently this was a DMX tribute, didn't realize that. Kind of reminded me more, me more of Baron Corbin, pre-King Corbin, where he basically was wearing, like, the, I'm trying to think, the vest that you'd see somebody wearing, an app like the, a waiter wearing an Applebee's or something like that. It was kind of weird, but I loved it. And the whole, like, good chunk of the fight is New Day isolating AJ Styles, keeping AJ Styles in the ring, as, and as far away as possible from AJ Styles and at one point it looks like they're about to go for it's It's almost like the death sentence if you remember A&W from back in the day in TNA where they have him set up and it's playing with the backbreaker position obviously they're probably going more for the elbow drop it's not the midnight, midnight hour which would have been great but the finish is we see him come out and then do that spot but Kofi turns his head away and then next thing you know, AK Styles takes over. And he's able to get the tag. Tomos. And he absolutely dominates the second he gets in the ring. No sells every single move, as you want to see from a big guy. And then he pins Kofi after a really big ass choke slam. And we have two tag team champions. This is three links of Boudin, Fine match. It felt like as expected. It felt like we were gonna get him to do the thing. And I was kind of Hesitant, to, hesitant on it because I never saw almost wrestle, but this was way better than expected from him. Kept him very much isolated. Had him just in this own little world. It worked extremely well, I think, for the most part. Now let's get to Shane McMahon versus Braun Strowman inside of a steel cage, a match I wasn't necessarily all looking forward to, and honestly, this was something I, I was getting even more tired of, the fact that we got before the match in the pre-show, Jerry Lawler, who did commentary in this match, by the way, was pulling out all the damn joke books possible. And it was getting more and more frustrating as it went on. Because at one point, he says, quote, I heard Braun tested positive for being a flower. You don't make a joke about testing positive in 2021. Come on now. Then I wouldn't do that, period. But testing positive for being a flower because he's a blooming idiot. That was the quote that he had on the pre-show where I was like, what the hell is going on? Why is why is Jr. still why is Jerry the King Lawler still in wrestling? He does these same like old corny ass jokes all the freaking time, and it's frustrating. I can't stand to hear these jokes anymore. It's like very much the same stuff he did thirty years ago, and some of it hasn't necessarily aged all that well. I wound up rewatching an old Monday Night Raw, which I'm going to get to further down the road because I want be to either like have time to write down a lot of notes about it because there was some stuff that <laughs> definitely. Was a little yikes. But let's get to the actual match itself. First off, love the use of drones outside the entrance. Braun stuff. He had the smoke blowing like crazy. And I love the fact they didn't have the full-blown choo-choo train gimmick. I think they tried doing it on Raw for like a moment in time. I don't quite 100% remember. Because I think it passed out like in the middle of that match. That being said, love the fact that we got to see Braun with a really cool entrance at WrestleMania. Then Elias and Riker to text Roman outside the ring while Shane McMahon is basically holding the cage door and making sure he can't get in. And then they give him a steel chair. And Shane just starts beating the crap out of Braun with this. He just is dominating. And then once Braun's, like, getting up, he's like, okay, I'm good. Shane tries to nearly escape, and Braun keeps stopping him again. It's a chicken bleep heel type move. I love it. And then Shane McMahon, this is an old take, but it's still a take because they're god-awful. Shane has the worst punches in the history of pro wrestling. I understand he's not actually throwing punches, but it feels like half the time he's throwing punches way too fast. Like slow it down, dude. That's not how a person actually throws a punch in a damn fight. You throw a punch, then you kind of have to shuck and dive, shuck and jive a little bit, and, and duck and dive all that stuff, and avoid getting hit. Then you throw another punch. It's not like throwing like a hundred punches. It's not like a hockey fight. Come on now. But then Strumman takes control, starts throwing him all around the cage. It is absolutely insane to see what's going on throughout this match. The back of the leg still bothering him. He's still selling the knee. At one point, Shane gets him down for a coast-to-coast that gets a two-count. Still so impressive to see the old man still do that coast-to-coast move. Looked great. Jerry did the scream in 2021. Also made a bunch of dumb jokes at the expense of Braun, which was kind of ridiculous. Braun manages to stop Shane once again from escaping, but for whatever reason, there was these like, I don't know if that was a part of the added stipulation or not, but you had these buckets, and they had buckets filled with, I presume different weapons. He only used ran the spot once, but he uses a toolbox that bash and then bashes him in the head, and that should be the finish of the match, right? You know, Shane gets over. That would have been the way to go about it, but no, you have to do things a little bit differently, and honestly. I liked it, but Shane just felt like a complete goober for not just going ahead and you know falling off the cage. Like he could have just dropped off the cage, not have to climb down, and he would have won. Spoilers there. Hell, you could have had you know Elias and Riker catch him like they catch the girls at the football game. You know, you could have done that kind of spot, but you didn't. Then Braun is stops him, rips the part of the cage off. He ripped the cage. Then he threw him back in the ring off the top of the freaking cage. That should have been the finish there. I was like, why don't, I was like, at first I was like, no, don't you do it, you, you idiot. Don't you make yourself look like even more of a geek. But they didn't make him look like a geek at all. They actually had him get the win by pinfall. But I was like, why couldn't, I mean, Braun, you're already up, you're already halfway there. Just climb down. You already killed the man but he decided to do a little more damage with respect. It was a trash build. It exceeded my expectations. This is a three and a quarter Lincoln Boudin type match. Really good stuff. I, again, love what they did here. Then we got to, you know, a hall of fame video package after another Bailey appearance. And it was basically the hall of fame guys came out as per the use. Last ones come out is the Bellas. I'm going to get to my thoughts on night Two a little bit. But then we get probably the biggest surprise of the night, bar none, and that is Bad Bunny and Damian Priest and The Miz and John Morrison, the tag team match that I think most of America has been talking about. And again, at first I was just, I did not care for this. It was very much a celebrity match. But then the more you hear about Bad Bunny and how much of a fan he is about of wrestling, they actually managed to make this a phenomenal celebrity match. I'm going to give it a lot more credit than probably a lot of people are going to give it. Especially just in my eyes, I'm sure Meltzer's going to have a whole different star rating scale for this. He's probably going to drop this down compared to what I give it. I get to that in a few, but this was ridiculous from the Jump Street because Miz and Morrison come out first with a bunch of bunnies. Apparently, Adam Rose's bunny has been busy since disappearing back in what 2015, 2016. I can't even remember. It was probably 2015 because 2016 when SmackDown came here. It was a social outcast, and they looked like a bunch of geeks then. Probably was a couple of those guys from the social outcast in there somehow, some way. And they're doing this incredible performance with these bunnies all hopping around. It's hey, hey, hop, hop. It was way too damn long, but I enjoyed it. It was funny. Then Damien Priest comes out, but not long after that, freaking bad bunny comes out on an 18 wheeler. looking like the same one from WCW, NW Revenge. And I love the fact that they did this like right from Jump Street. And as somebody who loves it, WCW and Revenge, this was something that popped me so much. It's a five boudin entrance from Bunny, and he gets a big shot on Miz right out the gate. She just jabs him. It looks like it's like legitimately he popped him, and he looked great throughout the match. And I give credit to Miz as well. He's such a great worker, and the fact he works such a safe style, he's able to you know put over a guy like Bad Bunny really strong here. And it showed that he wasn't like basically, I'd say like some others, where you kind of sandbag them. They, they sold for this guy really well. He had a spinning Rana that looked cool. He had a really good cheap shot from Miz at one point. They wound up giving them the momentum, getting good heat. Then at one point, it's like Morrison's beating him down. And again, this is like a good bit of the match. It's not like, oh, hey, you know, constant tags in and out, especially on the side of Bad Bunny. Bad Bunny took like the bulk of the match, took a bulk of the bumps here. Jamie Priest was kept as like a, a side character to a certain extent until the hot tag. We'll talk about that in a sec. But Morrison at one point throws shade to Booker T with a spin And somebody brought this up, and I love the fact that this is a thing. So back when he auditioned for Tough Enough, he did a spin a on there. Because he, they thought he didn't know who Booker T was. Probably didn't know that as much. Didn't know the spin rooney Didn't know what it was actually called. Because back then, it was back when he was in WCW, that was more of a, like, get-up move like The Undertaker sitting up or HBK's kip-up. So it wasn't necessarily as, like, notable at the time. But then it became like a celebration-type taunt or something like that or a transitional taunt to basically build towards your finisher or the finish of the match itself. Bunny takes over with a great DDT. Miz had a phenomenal sell for it also. It was almost like a flare-flop. Really good stuff. Then Priest finally gets in the ring with the hot tag and he just brings the heat right from the jump. hit And then Priest and Bad Bunny hit Falcon Arrows in stereo like at the same exact time. Hits for two. Can't believe they did the deed. And just when you think the match is over, Miz hits the skull-crushing finale on Bad Bunny. On Damian Priest, excuse me. Bad Bunny breaks up the pin. And then comes the finish of the match. Bad Bunny hit Morrison with a freaking Canadian Destroyer. Never would have seen that coming in a million years. Fantastic way to set up the finish, where it's a Doomsday Device-esque crossbody for the win. Absolutely amazing match. Still can't believe I saw a Celebrity do a Canadian disarray. I mentioned it with Alan last week on the pod, that this was going to be better than McAfee's debut, and it hit that mark and then some in my mind. And I'm very much a cynical wrestling fan from time to time, but damn, I was sports entertained. This is a four-and-a-half Lincoln boot match for me. No doubt. Now, yes... I wound up saying that Cesaro-Seth Rollins is my favorite second favorite match of the night. I think that's more because of the fact they put in a phenomenal effort from start to finish. It This took a while to build. This took a while to build and also the fact I was taken out of it because it was such a long, drawn-out intro for both parties. It took a while for the match to even start. So that kind of took me out of it for a little bit. Overall, great stuff. Now we get to the SmackDown Women's Championship match, the main event of night number one. Bianca Belair, Sasha Banks, this is absolutely deserved to be the main event of night one, and it was cool. The fact that this was the first ever match between two black women, which is really cool, the fact they brought that up, one, but the video package, hyping it up, the the, the emotions they had in that moment are so damn cool. It's something that I think needs to be completely understood. And, you know, when it comes down to it, one of the big things that, I complain about in the opener, but that's the fact that it was more of a blood feud. This is more of a mutual respect, better wrestler type feud. If you've if you've played Journey of Wrestling, you know what I'm talking about when I say the better wrestler feud. This is, hey, we're going to go ahead and put the two best against each other, and these are the two best doing it right now. And they open up with a collar and elbow tie-up. I had no qualms about that. I was like, okay, it's what it is, because it's more about who's the better wrestler. It's not, oh, hey, I hate you, you hate me, and let's go ahead and beat the crap out of each other for 20 minutes. No, this is just a straight-up old-school wrestling match. Sasha took control early on, but after a suicide dive to the outside by Banks, Bianca caught Sasha, then put her up in a press-slam position, and walked her all the way up towards the steps, up the steps on the apron, and then threw her into the ring. I remember seeing back in the day, I believe it was Big Show on Rock one week, on like a random SmackDown where had him held up at the press slam position and threw his ass back in the ring. This was 100 times more impressive. The fact you were able to move around and she did not move like a single inch. Give Bianca all the credit in the world. She is absolutely probably one of the most like, in-shape persons I've ever, people I've ever seen in a WWE ring. She crushed it here. And it's been a great match all the way through. You wind up having a really good story being told with... Sasha grabbing Bianca's hair because she had never really used the hair spot that much. She used a lot of NXT. I've seen that in her match at the May Young Classic a while like a few years ago. But the way they had that built all throughout the match about the hair being a negative for her, and she turned that negative into a positive in the finish, which we'll get to in a little bit. But they had a really great match. I mean, she Sasha grabbed Bianca's hair, wound up hitting a really nice knee on her. Then, you know, Bianca hits a standing shooting star press that looks smooth as silk. She nearly got DQ'd after not long after that. Bianca goes for the 450, but Banks puts the knees up. The 450 for her is phenomenal. By the way, it's just like it looks like it's in slow motion for her. It looks like she is doing this almost like seamlessly. It's perfect. Then we get to you know Bianca hitting a double power bomb on Banks for two. It looked Jericho esque because she picked her up, powerbombed her once. And then basically deadlifted her and looked like it took a second for her to kind of fully get her up. Hit the hit the second power bomb. That one I'm getting two. And then she went for a third, which is like screw it, I'm going for a third. one. why not? But Banks countered with the face buster. Banks takes control. She locked in the bank statement with Bianca's hair. A phenomenal rope break spot here. So damn good. Then at one point, Bianca gets trapped in the tree of woe. Sasha Banks is about to go for me to Yora. But she avoids a couple moves, and it's the 450 splash for two. She basically moves out of the way of the meteor, then she tries to hit the drop kick, and then Bianca gets up, and Sasha takes a bad bump. She's out. 450 for two. Bianca Banks goes for the hair again, but Bel Air grabs the hair back and whips the piss out of her. Absolutely crushes her. It was amazing. It left this incredible welt It's that image is going to stand in a lot of people's eyes for years to come. And it was a perfect way to kind of lead to the finish where she eventually hit the KOD after it got countered that she hit it again to become, she didn't hit it the first time Then she went for it again, was able to connect the finish. She's a new SmackDown women's champion. This is a five link of boot match. No doubt. The first one I've got to say on a WWE scale that I'm going to give it probably not going to happen all that often. This was an amazing main event that had a lot to it, a lot of hype. Absolutely an amazing finish. Duel was a really good overall night one of WrestleMania. Without a doubt, it was the better show. Two thumbs up match. Night three was the main event. No shot without a shadow of a doubt. I think the Bat Bunny match is definitely more the bronze, even though it got the higher rating. I think I'm giving it the higher rating because I was just a lot more sports entertained. The match itself, if I go watch, go watch it back, I'm probably gonna notice, you know, it was okay. But watching it in the moment. As I'm writing my notes, this was such a damn good match. And then, then you have Ronald Cesar. Ronald Cesar can always put on bangers, and this was another prime example of just that. We're going to get to WrestleMania 2 in just a little bit, but we got to get into some Broken Skull Sessions talk, and we'll do that next. <laughs> All right, it's the Caitlin Strong Style Podcast. Hopefully, you're enjoying it so far. We'll keep this conversation rolling on with Chris Jericho's Broken Skull Sessions. This was so damn cool. To see this on Peacock. And they opened up, you know, talking about how this all came about. Nothing major to really take away from this. This is kind of the same as what they said during the press release from, I believe, either WWE.com or SI. I don't remember who the hell broke the news. But that's basically... What they what they said there was what they said in the release that we talked about on the podcast last Monday. But within four minutes of the podcast, Jericho mentions AEW when talking about his 30th anniversary. says his career will never be replicated because he's seen it all before. He's seen how things were back in the Territory days all the way to now. Not too many people can say that. I mean, obviously guys like Arn Anderson can, but when it comes to his career, he's seen everything. And he actually talked about going to AEW saying, quote, Going to Japan enlightened him, and basically he talked about Tony Khan, about the new promotion, realized there was something different about this, because he's gotten talks about this all the time from a bunch of money marks that want to say do this, and it's like he just felt he was more confident and noticed that there was something different about this. And essentially, he mentioned this. I think it's interesting, especially when you think about how promotions are run, is that you need to have money, passion, a TV deal in terms of being a worldwide company, you have money, passion, a TV deal, and talent. Basically, he said, obviously, you can have any kind of talent, but you need four to six guys. You can build a territory around, build a promotion around. And he puts over Khan's passion for the sport of wrestling. Obviously, has the money. And the contract with TNT was huge. And apparently, he mentioned Showtime, HBO, or even Netflix was something that was talked about, bantied about. But TNT getting the contract was massive he also said he never thought there'd be another major promotion after WCW was bought out. When it was all said and done, it felt like, you know, that's about it. We're go, it's WWE and nobody else, really. It'll be, you'll see some promotions pop up, but they won't be as big as WCW. And he also had a bunch of other interesting takeaways, saying that he talked about how much of a huge kind of pop there was and spike in interest for New Japan because of the Kenny Omega-Chris Jericho match. Con realized Jericho is the bridge to get people to tune in. Also, Jericho cited Jim Ross as another reason why. I don't think that's the case anymore, to be honest with you, but you know it is what it is. And he wound up also saying he didn't want to go back to WWE again. He wanted to do something else because he felt like if he was going to go back, he was just going to be performing back in black, be like ACDC, even though he had 15 albums come out since, and basically he's changed a lot since then. And then they cut... And they start going over his career. I'm not going to go through all the stuff because you've probably heard a lot of it. But I love some of the takeaways that this had because I was like, okay, they bring up The Man of a Thousand and Four Holds. That was actually Disco Inferno's idea. Also, Raven helped with that as well because apparently the Moss covered three-handled family gradunzo was actually an idea from Raven. He said it came from Dr. Seuss' book. I don't think that's true. I don't remember exactly what I read, but it was a little bit different. And also Bischoff mentioned that he wanted to make Jericho his equivalent of Shawn Michaels, which is a great idea in theory, but in practice, man, that was, it just it's a tough sell. And obviously, he talked about ECW, didn't feel like an ECW guy. And kind of Paul Heyman kept trying to, like, avoid him, was kind of just messing with his head a little bit. But you notice that he was kind of being built up as something, but it's like you start him off against, like, Brian Armstrong, and it's just yeah, this isn't working. This isn't going to work for me, brother. And that's kind of how it was. And at one point, you know, we they wound up showing the spinal tap gimmick they had for Jericho where he was getting lost on his way to the ring. And Goldberg was upset about that because that was basically building towards a match between between these two. And he didn't want it do it because he was kind of, because Jericho wasn't taking it seriously in his mind. And Jericho's idea was that this would be the, greatest squash match of all time, because that was going to be the build of it. You're going to see a really good match between these two and make Goldberg look really strong, but Goldberg wanted nothing of it. Next thing you know, Jericho leaves WCW, so the match doesn't happen. All because of Goldberg taking himself maybe a little bit too seriously. That's just the way it sounds in my mind. And then he talked about meeting Vince McMahon at his home, and actually Vince's home, I should say, at Vince at the McMahon household, and while they're talking about Monday Night Raw, Vince asked Jericho how he would have booked a finish for D'Lo Gangrel. He used that as an example. It wasn't that actual match, but he just used that because he couldn't quite remember exactly what match it was that he had to make the finish of basically on the spot. It was all a test for him to kind of see how well he can be trusted. Then Jericho talks about his debut promo. It was only Russo, him, and The Rock that all knew what was going to be said that night. And it mentions that's a big reason why the promo was so good, because he didn't have too many cooks in the kitchen. I think something that they could take note of in 2021 and go forward. Then they go, you know, Kevin Dunn apparently helped create the countdown graphic, all that stuff. Jericho went over the reason why, which again, I've heard that story a million times. I understand like why that was brought up. For those who don't, who haven't seen many interviews of him, he's talked about that many times. Talked about his title match on Raw in 2000 being a real test for him overall because that was a big test for him. And At one point, Triple H told him to slow down and listen to him because he wanted to kind of help him get, run through these paces and saying that a lot of stuff from here we all kind of know about. I mean, you know, talk about the Shawn Michaels mania match, him leaving in 2005. I think I remember, it, in fact, that was probably one of the first times I ever heard what he says is the B word or Stone Cold says as the B word, and that was burnout. It's a big word. I think we all know now in 2021. We hear it all the time, but we never really think about it, especially as it's happening. But Jericho knew that it was time to go. He wanted to do other things because he felt like he was burnout. I completely understand where he's coming from with all that. And he kind of keeps going. And he says, you know, Jericho also mentioned Don Cows is a big reason why all the New Japan stuff happened and then eventually all wrestling happened because of it. And also stated he talked to Tony Khan after getting taken off the Crown Jewel match because he had booked a match for New Japan then told Vince about it. He's like, hey, I can't do it on this date because of blah, blah, blah. So instead, Vince just said, okay, I'm taking you off the card and we're going to go ahead and put Rusev in his place in that casket match at Crown Jewel. And Jericho's like, what the hell's going on with that? What's up with that? But it was interesting to hear that as the big reason why he said, you know, I'm gonna start, go ahead and start talking to this guy. He has an idea. I'm going to go ahead and go to it. But he was actually kind of in an interesting turn of events. He actually started talking about AEW again and talked about his career at this point in time. And they started talking about working during the pandemic and having no fans at Daly's place. And how whenever the fans started to come back, it slowly but surely the fans are coming back and it felt like, like Madison Square Garden. And, He mentions the feud he had with Orange Cassidy over the summer saying that at one point, you know, Cassidy asked him if he sold too long after the match. And Jericho said, honestly, I have no idea because there's no crowd to really gauge whether or not you sold too long or too short, which was a really cool way to go about. And they also mentioned can't wait to work houses again. They even showed the AEW title, which that alone is crazy to think about. But they also mentioned his book. And then it ended with a question from Austin about how long he thinks he's going to continue to do that. Do this wrestling thing. And Jericho put it simply, as long as he doesn't feel like a parody of himself, he'll still wrestle. And hopefully he can still do it for a few more years. But I think that's the big thing for him. And I completely understand that, especially when you heard the theme throughout. As long as he doesn't feel like he's just that guy that's doing all the greatest hits. And he just feels like he's not that guy. He's going to continue to do this. And he would love to continue to do all the stuff that he does. He even put over Austin in a big way because he helped him get into the podcasting game, which was a cool takeaway in and of itself. So if you haven't gone check it out already, go do so now because it is so good. And the fact they mention a lot of different things, it's a two-hour thing. Don't get me wrong. It's a long thing. You're going to have to sit back and relax and watch that whole show. But trust me, it is so worth it as a wrestling fan to kind of hear all these stories being told and also kind of like literally sometimes you hear you see these shows and they're very much like a work shoot since this felt like the first stone cold broken skull sessions that was no holds barred there were nothing there was nothing that was like all off the table and that's what makes this stuff so great and i loved it it was a perfect way to kind of bridge that gap between wrestlemania night one and wrestlemania night two because i watched it around like sunday afternoon i was watching sunday afternoon while i was at a baseball game. I was like, I'm going to go ahead and check this out while also working on some things. So I had that on in the background while also watching the game and taking care of some other stuff behind the scenes. So I was loving the fact I had just so much going on and this had my attention for a good bit. So again, highly recommend you go check this out if you haven't already over on Peacock. But we're going to go ahead and wrap this up in just a sec with some Wrestlemania 37 Night 2 Recap. So we go to WrestleMania 37, night number two. And it was the same cold open as last night. Overall, the whole kickoff show was weird. And then the show started even weirder with Hogan and Titus O'Neil dressed like pirates, straight out of like an SNL cold cold open. And then Hogan said, yo, ho, ho, brother. And for a split second, I thought he said, yo, 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 brother. And that would have been even weirder. The entire night was insane. And this is something that I'm going to just bring up as the overall takeaway of the show real quick right out of the gate this was very much a neutered down show. And I feel like that may have been more about the fact they wanted to be able to get this show in because you got to think about it. If you're in Tampa, as much after what we saw the night before where you had to push back the show like a half hour dealing with the lightning delays and trust me, lightning delays are a real B-I to deal with. And I've again, I'm going to go back to baseball real quick because if you've ever gone to a baseball game or a sporting event outdoors if there's lightning in the area it is 30 minutes from that time and if you have lightning anytime within that 30 minute time frame you just have to start the clock again at 30 it just keeps adding on so if you keep having lightning strikes it delays it by another it's another 30 minutes let's say if you have a lightning strike at 605 no matter what time zone you're in, 6.05. Let's go ahead and use that as a general number. You can't have it come back on until 6.35. Then you got to get a few minutes and get everything ready, all that stuff. So you got to wait till 6.35. But if a lightning strike happens at 6.30, then you start the clock again at 7 and so on and so forth. That's the problem. That's the BI that you know, Vince McMahon and crew were having to deal with. Because they were having to deal with this. I think that was a big reason why we wound up seeing such short matches. I mean, the opening match lasted like a total of six minutes. And the Nigerian drum fight was even shorter. They wound up just rushing and getting all their bleep in. And you noticed that. It was something I kind of took away from it. Yes, it was a three-hour show. And yes, it was perfectly fine for the pay-per-view window. But at the end of the day, this should have been a tad bit longer. It felt like it just was in fast-forward mode until the main event. And I'll get to some of my thoughts on the matches in just a little bit. But that was something I wanted to just come right out of the gate and say. It felt like overall, WrestleMania 37, Night 2 was a rushed job. And it's not the fault of the performers or anything. It's the fact you're going up against the elements here after you dealt with Night 1. If this was all one night and you didn't have to deal with it, and you you were able to get all your shows in, get all your matches in, in this venue, then yeah, I think the conversation changes. But obviously, you're in Florida where, spoilers, it rains a whole hell of a lot. But we get to the opening match The Fiend versus Randy Orton. And I did not, I was throwing it off for a second because Orton comes out with the white trunks. Never have seen him wear white, white trunks before. Really cool. But again, there's a little bit of correlation to the main event. I'll explain that in a little bit. But they look sick. And then he winds up like acting like he's slipping, which could have been a a joke about last line or maybe a dig at AEW with the whole carpet gimmick. But I love the fact they did that because it was kind of funny. Not going to lie. The pyro he had was amazing. It was like all the pyro at this point. The video package leading into the fiend was awesome. And just when you think, you know, the fiend's actually going to walk out and go ahead and take care of business. Alexa bliss comes out. And I was like, what is going on here? Please let this be something even better. And then it kind of was in a sense Because the Fiend comes out in a jack-in-the-box, like a literal giant-ass jack-in-the-box. The The fact we got that was cool in and of itself. So, again, we got to see that. You know, the Fiend had an awesome entrance, and we get to see him no longer have, you know, the the messed-up mask. Now it's back to, like, the so-fresh, so-clean Fiend, which I love that. (laughs) Again, everything about this was fantastic. And The Fiend immediately dominated the match from Jump Street. Orton tried to take over, hit an elevated DDT, but The Fiend no-selled everything at this point. The Fiend keeps fighting back, and he winds up setting up Sister Abigail. And here's where things go off the rails, because all of a sudden, he gets the Sister Abigail. The fire flies up out of the corner post, which is a great visual. So cool they did that. So great they're actually going ahead and running with this spot. it was great to see The Fiend win, and apparently he was supposed to win, but then they changed it. As per the usual, changes were made, and we got to see Randy Orton win with an RKO. But that was after Alexa Bliss was suddenly linking motor oil, and I was like, what the hell is going on? Why are we getting this? What are we doing to The Fiend? And then all of a sudden, Alexa just starts staring at The Fiend. The lights go out, and when they come on, they're both gone, and all the fans are going, Boo! Boo! Get this off my... Like, they were they were outright hating the finish of this. And I completely understand why. This is a one-and-a-half Lincoln-Boudin-type match. Let this be the last time, and they it's not going to be, but let this be the final time we see The Fiend ever again. They took the bloom entirely off the rose here and ruined it. They made The Fiend look even more like a geek than actual Bray Wyatt. Who did Bray Wyatt like ruin? Who did he? Who did, Who blackmailed him and made sure that you managed to ruin one of the coolest characters in WWE? Is it's different? It was getting over, and now you see this moment. It's like what the hell? I know I understand. You know people are gonna say, "Oh, let it play out." No, I don't want to see it play out. I don't want to see this gimmick ever again. Just honestly, bring me, bring back Husky Harris. For all I'm concerned, I cannot stand the fact that we're continuing. To see somebody like Bray Wyatt get underutilized and just this start-stop BS type of push. That's exactly what we saw. And it, we're gonna see it with Alexa Bliss and Lily and the Fiend and Bray. God, I hate this stuff sometimes, man. And this is one of those reasons. I got so frustrated. Right at the gate, this is your opening match, and it's gonna set the tone for a really crappy night, too. Then we get to a match I really didn't care about. The women's tag team title match, Italian Tamina. Versus Nia Jackson, Shannon Basz. I'm going to wait and calm down a little bit because we go for a match I cared about, and Fiend Orton because I was like, "Hell yeah, give me a cinematic match!" And apparently, there was no plans for a cinematic match. It is what it is, and this is something I wish didn't happen on the card, which was on, on the kickoff show. For all I'm concerned, wish it could have been on SmackDown, WrestleMania, or WrestleMania Backlash. Please, I don't need to see this on a pay per view card, and it's a fine match. I'd say probably rated perfectly fine. It was better than I expected. Shayna almost killed Natalya with a knee to the face. They wound up taking out Natalya with a body slam. Really? Tamina Snuka, the daughter of Jimmy Superfly Snuka, who by the way killed a man. What the hell? Like, you never see a body slam take somebody out for like five minutes. And that's exactly what we saw here. Naya one point he just takes over, and it's basically Natalia trying to fight back between Nia and Shayna. Jackson's a, I, I guess you I don't, they call it a spine buzzer, but it's like that's a choke bomb. Like it's basically a power bomb, and it hits a, it gets set up for a choke slam, and that's it. It was weird, and it was another weird instance of WB not knowing how to call moves and call spots. And then, you know, Tamina takes control of the match, gets the hot tag. Probably one of two times I've ever been rooting for Tamina openly because I just don't care. I don't care for her. I just never have. It's just like she does nothing for anybody, I feel like, in my mind. She's just there. And she gets out of the Kira Fuda clutch, hits a Samoan drop right after. Naya double cross body for two on both Natalia and Tamina. But she winds up tweaking her knee, it looks like. Naya winds up. Dropping the S-bomb, you ain't believe. I'm King Kong, B-word, so damn cool. In fact, Nia said the S-word before Chuck Taylor. Pop me for a second. Tamina winds up trying to get the win with the Superfly Splash. Misses. Natalia gets the hot tag, tries to go for the sharpshooter, and, and gets it on Nia, but Baszler winds up hitting in the Kirifuda clutch, and Natalia passes out, and they retain. Still didn't care for this match, but it was still good. This is a 25 of bootant type match for me. It was better. But it's not until the next match that things start to ramp up, and I actually get to be in a good mood. Sami Zayn versus Kevin Owens kicked all kinds of ass. KO immediately just went for his signature. Basically, it was like a wrestling game where you immediately had the 100% momentum. Speaking of which, 2K22 looks fine. I'm not going to hold any judgment for it i I see more and more and more and more. And the new Legacy does a day one glitch gimmick, and it just absolutely makes me realize how much of a joke this franchise has become. And hopefully it's the last WWE thing that 2K ever does, because they suck at it. But anyways, he immediately hits the pop-up powerbomb, and they are going at it. At one point, Sami Zayn hits a brain buster on the apron. Sammy went ham on this match with all kinds of different crazy moves. The Dragon Suplex, Michinoku Driver, which... Every time, at uh, Michael Cole just can never get this call right. It's the freaking Mitch and Okun driver, not the blue thunderbomb. Get that out your mind. A couple of suplexes while he's at it. They start fighting in the corner. And it looks like for a split second, we're going to get the brain buster. We're actually going to get the brain buster off the top rope. But then Owens counters it, makes everybody teased, And then he hits a fisherman suplex, like a twisting fisherman suplex, which looked badass, first of all. He hit that off the top rope. So damn good. I think a beauty from him. Zane hits the Huluva kick on Owens and tries to go for it twice, but Owens demolishes Sammy with a pair of super kicks and finishes the job with the stunner for the win. Damn, that was a fun finish. Yes, it was a short match. And I got to give credit to Sammy. Selling the, the stunner, he was muttering to himself after the match. Really nice touch. Three and a half boudin links for me for this match. Afterwards, Logan Paul started talking with Kevin Owens, saying, Hey, man, congratulations on the win, dude. Why don't you be part of the Logan?" I have no idea what that actually said, but, you know, i was having fun with it. Sami Zayn keeps complaining that Logan's the enemy, but Logan Paul pushes him down, and Sammy says, to hell with you, and leaves. Logan raises Owen's hand, and Owen's like, what the hell? I don't like this guy. Screw him. Hits a stunner on him, and I loved it. And stunt the... Logan Paul actually sold that stunner extremely, extremely well. So damn good, couldn't have it to a better person. Loved it. Then we get to Riddle. He's backstage, scooting around, then bumps into Great Collie. <laughs> I was blown away. He's like, bro, you got such big hands, man. What's the scooter business like in India? That's basically what it was. Like, again, Riddle is totally Kyle in real life. And then RVD comes out. And I popped this so hard because I was, I was wanting to see this so bad. And then we see RVD with the of papers. I was cracking the hell up the entire time. Absolutely loved this spot. It was such a great little backstage segment. Riddle came out with the scooter insurance. I wish he had like a bigger scooter to use. But again, it was funny. It was fine. And then he... Did the whole bird gimmick. I don't. I still don't understand the damn pigeons. Like, what's up with that? And the pigeons had, you know, the WrestleMania pirate hat on, which is cool. I'm not going to lie. Love that. Hard-hitting brawl all throughout the match. They're just killing each other. Riddle, at one point, hits a top rope Spanish fly. And again, Michael Cole, king of really not knowing what moves are actually called, or at least he's being told to call it this way. He's like, don't call a Spanish fly. Call it a red belly, my suplex. And that's exactly what he did. I was like, "What the hell is going on?" Riddle hit the jackhammer for two. Please, just give us Riddle Goldberg at SummerSlam, or like, just give it to us, please. Like, I don't want him involved in a title match. Just give me Riddle Goldberg and give it to me now, please, for the love of God. Then we get to Sheamus. He absolutely destroyed Riddle with the bro kick for two. Then he wound up going for White Noise, but White Noise on the apron. But Riddle counter with the German suplex look great. Then comes probably what would have been the best spot of the night and probably the best spot of all Mania besides the Hair Whip. He almost hit white noise off the top rope. Like he slips just a little bit. He's still able to get the move off. But imagine if he had been able to somehow carry riddle set him up off the top rope and hit this. Holy hell, hell that would have been Mania highlights for years. it would have been very similar to the Brock Lesnar shooting star press. This would have been in that kind of mix because that was something I did not expect. I hope we, when we do see something like that, that would have been awesome. But the finish is a million times better and you kind of forget how it ends. This ends with Sheamus broke kicking Riddle into oblivion off of a springboard moonsault and we have a uni- new United States champion. Basically, it was the Cole Ricochet spot, but adding in the fact that Riddle legitimately got busted open and his mouth was bleeding which was amazing. Freaking great finish. I just want to say the other word, but phenomenal way to end this match. New United States champion absolutely deserves it. I want to see him have a bigger run because I think there's more in the future for Riddle, and this is a good way to kind of really establish him. And also now I think maybe we could have Sheamus bring this title back to a little bit more prestige and make him maybe be more of a fighting champion because I think Sheamus could absolutely crush it with a lot of guys. You know when Keith Lee comes back, that's going to be a huge view to look at because those two could kill it on a pay-per-view. Then we get to a backstage quote-unquote segment, some pre-tape. Bad Bunny is written off of TV by promoting his 2022 tour. Can't wait for more live music events like that to come back, but more importantly Bad Bunny, smartest businessman in the biz. Then we get to the Nigerian drum fight. <laughs> Never explained what the rules were. And this was Apollo Crews, Big E, for the Intercontinental title. And right away, I knew what was going to happen. Big E lost. Because while A performing, it's the curse. It's a curse unlike any other. And it was a fine performance. And no one's playing drums, so this is a pointless match. It's a street fight. It's a glorified street fight. I was disappointed by that. They start just wailing on each other with kendo sticks like in the opening 30 seconds of the match. Then, you know, Big E takes control with a spear at the outside. It is, oh, wait, hey, let's just go ahead and get our greatest hits in. Big E steps out of the way after Apollo nearly murders him by throwing a chair, throwing the steps on him. And then he responded with a uranaki on the steel steps from the apron. That was a really cool spot. And then, you know, Big E hits the big splash through a table. That looks like that should be the finish. Then he hits the big ending. That should be the end. Daba Kato shows up. Daba freaking Kato shows up. Hits the damn. Like, chokeslam from hell. Like, it was a huge chokeslam. I think it's a, it's a big mamma jamma. And he picked up Biggie like he was nothing. And then Cruz pinned him for the win. Yes, it's a little bit of weird booking. But, honestly, I love this. Dabakato is going to be used a lot more. This is a three links to Boudin match. I probably would give it a lot higher if we wound up getting, obviously, drums were actually used in the contest. Then we get to the 2021 Hall of Fame class introduced to the crowd. Kane's the last one to come out. He hits the pyro. And I think the entire stage at that point was engulfed in flames. I'm sure if the theme was out there, he would have been burnt to a crisp again. So we get to the Raw Women's Championship match after this. So Rhea Ripley had the person, I I couldn't tell you for the life of me, who performs her theme song. Honestly, it was like some nondescript person who I'd never seen before, never heard of before. So she did the entrance. And this time around, the momentum was on the other side because you weren't going to have the live performance lose twice, right? No, you wound up getting Rhea Ripley winning the match in a fantastic kind of contest. Love the new Asuka mask that she had early on. It's a big story. Speed versus power. Asuka wound up really selling that in the early goings. Uh, that's like the opening three minutes, she took control, used the speed to her advantage, a lot of hip hip bumps. All that stuff was really good. Then Rhea started to assert herself at her, her will with of power moves. And they really went all out here. At one point, Asuka hit a DDT off the apron to the outside. And Rhea Ripley almost got counted. This probably got in about the eight count, which was really close in and of itself. Ripley gets this, gets her submission move in. I can't, for the life of me, I can't think of what it's actually called. I think it would be called, I think Paige called it the PTO, Paige tap or please tap out. I don't remember what she calls hers. But it's very similar to that. But it's a great DDT by Asuka to the outside. Again, we got to see some other really awesome spots. Like Rhea Ripley pulling off a deadlift German suplex. That was awesome. And that was really bad. That my PS4 at one point, because I basically watched the WWE Network or Peacock or whatever. I'd watch it on my PlayStation 4. I've never had an issue. I didn't have a single issue night one. I had some buffering issues early on. Is what it is. I was streaming a lot over the last two days. Understandable. But all of a sudden, my PS4 feed cut out entirely. Entirely. And Peacock basically kicked me off the feed. I was like, what the hell? So I re I have to turn on my controller, get back in, and click the button that says WrestleMania. And I got in just in time to see the finish with Maria Ripley winning the Raw Women's Title. This was a fantastic match, so damn good. I think this is a four link Kabune match, great finish. Life performance was, wasn't bad luck. She absolutely deserves a good run with the Raw Women's title, but you know, obviously what happened the night after all makes me wonder what's next for her. Is she just gonna wind up losing the title to Charlotte like a loser? Then we get to the final moments of the night. Titus and Hogan come out. Fans, Boo Hogan, as they have the last two nights, which is fantastic. Love you, fans, for doing that. And Bailey comes out and says, you know, she should be thanked. She has Pyro pop up. And she's like, thank you. <laughs> all this stuff. You kind of are right, like, okay, is Becky going to show up? Is Ronda going to show up? What's going to happen? Who's going to wind up making their surprise appearance? Because we haven't seen too many surprises at WrestleMania. There's always at least one. And then you hear, you can look, but you can't touch. I'm like, damn it. Why do we keep getting this? Why do we keep being teased with something cool and then give us the Bella twins beating up Bailey and ding dong goodbye. I, I want to say goodbye to the Bellas. Just keep them the hell away from the show. Bailey deserved a lot better than that. I hope that she was crying in a hotel room because that was a waste of her talents and it was just so damn stupid. But again, it's just Bailey. The Universal Championship match is the main event of 92 and the main event of WrestleMania. Edge, Daniel Bryan, Roman Reigns. Edge had white gear that was definitely very much like your boy Randy Orton. At this point, fans went, like, psycho for Edge's entrance and well-deserved. Roman, well, like, for a split second, I thought we were going to get, like, a swerve. We're going to have, like, Roman Reigns not be in the match. Somebody else is going to fill in for him, like Brock Lesnar, and they going to be really pissed off. But no, Roman just took his jolly time getting to the ring And, of course, flanked by Paul Heyman and Jay Uso. They wind up using, like, the 8K camera, or the not really 8K. It's more like a 4K camera. But they're using different, like, focuses and filters on all this BS. And immediately, Roman just pelated Daniel Bryan with a big punch. And now it's Edge and Roman before Bryan fights back. Bryan gets thrown out, super kicked by Jay Uso does the same after Edge is thrown out. And and he, I mean, Roman starts beating up on Edge, getting some heat on him. Brian barely hits a super uh, suicide dive. He looks like he hit the middle rope with his foot, and then Edge is able to kind of take over and is like, "I'm gonna beat the crap out of Jay for what he did." Hits an execution on Jay on top of steps. Brian and Edge go at it while Roman sits outside the ring. Edge gets a big counter off the top rope for two. So cool. Reigns gets involved a little bit later. But Brian isolates him again and nearly gets the win. But he winds up just going for a suicide dive instead, which was a dumb idea. Because Roman countered it with a brutal-looking suplex. Then Edge hits the execution on Reigns in the ring and went for the spear. But Reigns clocks him with a Superman punch, taking him down. Both Edge Roman went for spears and it led to a double down. It was like, okay, they just injured themselves like pretty badly from what I could tell. Rough spot there. Went for Spears, doubled down. Brian t- tries to take advantage, hit both of them with a the, uh, headbutt off the top rope. Why does he continue to do that? Tons of yes kicks in this match. It's just like he is kicking the crap out of both these guys. Main event at this point has been amazing. Brian gets Roman in the yes lock, and he winds up putting like the, I think it's the edge of a chair in his mouth. That was, no, that was later in the match. Sorry. Brian gets in the yes lock. Edge breaks it up. He then puts Edge in the yes lock, but Roman saves the matchup right after that. Reigns throws Brian through the announce desk with a powerbomb. Brian sold that thing like it was death. Well done from him. And Roman's posing and taunting. Edge spears him off the steps. Then they go back in the ring. Edge grabs a couple chairs. And when Roman snatches it, one of the legs falls off and comes into play a little bit later. Edge locks in the crossface. The visual of that was really cool. Just four reigns taps. Brian locks in one of his own. <laughs> I love the fact they did that because, again, you can't really tap if you're in a submission hole, if it's a double submission, because then that creates all kinds of controversy, which would have been a great finish. I'm not going to lie, but I like what they did. Brian went for the knee. Edge hits both of them with a spear. Brian pulls the ref at 2.9. Kick-ass stuff here from start to finish in this match. Edge starts beating both of them with a chair. Kevin Dead just can't stop changing cameras. Then Edge... Is looking to finish it off with a concerto to Brian just before he goes to hit Reigns. Then Jey Uso runs in. Edge just starts beating the crap out of him. And then Edge gets destroyed by Reigns with a spear. And then he hits a concerto on Edge, which looks brutal. And it's like, oh, God, he killed him. He's dead. And then he pins both Edge and Brian to retain the universal title. And the fact they used that finish had Edge's shoulders clearly pinned as well that was a really cool spot and really establishes even more of a dominant freaking monster that is Roman Reigns. It's a 45 linga boudin match. Genuinely surprised by the finish of the match and has we intrigued about what's next for the head of the table and the face of the blue brand. Night 2 overall was significantly weaker for me. A lot of people on Twitter said thumbs in the middle, but it was saved, I think, by a phenomenal second half of the show. I think the final three matches were really good. Yes, they were shorter, but damn, if I was not like sports entertained for the final three matches, that saved it. KO, Sami Zayn helped as well. And, you know, it was just a disastrous start. And I was very surprised we got some short matches. But, you know, it made sense in terms of filling that three hour window and trying to get it in before. Because I know they had a midnight, this is Eastern time. So it would have been 11 p.m. our time here in Louisiana. Would have been a midnight, would have been 11 p.m. drop dead time. And if you had that drop dead time, you know, then the show's over. You can't make up the spots. So, if you're in the show at 10, 10-hour 10 time to be 11 on the East Coast, you are screwed. Like, you have to get all that stuff in. It can't be a four-hour show because of the fact of the way Tampa Bay wanted it to be done. And the way it was worked was great. The fact we had fans back in the stands, they brought the noise. Fantastic show. To say the least. And this has been a fantastic show. Giving it to you. Took a day off because I was like, man, I need to kind of just collect some of my thoughts, and also get some energy back. Because, man, you know, Saturday I was up to about 2 a.m. and, like, basking in the afterglow of a great WrestleMania night one. WrestleMania night two, I was able to, I went to bed not long after. It wrapped up. But I was still kind of feeling a little bit groggy. It's that post-mania kind of hangover, I guess you could call it. But appreciate you listening into to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. As for the usual, we'll be back to our regular Monday schedule. Maybe, just maybe, we'll bring back some of the bonus episodes before too long. And I can't wait to just unveil some more content that I've got in mind as we near, as we're starting a new year in the sport of pro professional wrestling after WrestleMania wraps up once again, appreciate you listening in. Make sure you leave us a five-star rating on iTunes because that get Apple podcasts. I should say that way we can get more eyes on the product because at the end of the day, that's what we as a podcasting world want to have.